If you're just joining, I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. March is Women's History Month, and it also happens to be the start of Ramadan, the Muslim holy month. It's a time when many fast, engage in charity, and form a closer connection to community by gathering in the evenings to recite chapters from the Muslim holy book, the Quran. For many centuries, the scholars translating and interpreting Islam's different theological traditions was dominated by men. It wasn't like that at the beginning in the 7th century, but then things changed, and the number of women known as scholars, sheikhahs, was in decline. But in the 20th century, things began to change. More women started studying, writing, and today, leading Islamic studies departments in universities and theological seminaries around the globe. One of the pioneers in the field is Dr. Amina Wadud. Reporter Hannah Baba brings us this story from The Spiritual Edge, a reporting project of KALW Public Radio. In her East Bay home study, Islamic scholar Dr. Amina Wadud shows me family pictures on her walls and desk. I have uh, four grandsons. Four grandsons, mashallah. Let me just show off my kids. We're surrounded by dozens of books on Islam, Islamic history, theology. She's an African-American convert to Islam. She grew up the daughter of a Methodist minister, but she was curious. When I was 14, I went away for high school, and I lived with different families, uh, Unitarian Universalist, Catholic, and Jewish. In college, she became interested in Eastern religions and became a Buddhist. Then one day... I got a copy of the Qur'an. Once I got it, then I fell in love, and I decided that I wanted to remove all the impediments between me and understanding this book. And I started studying Arabic, which I did for 10 years, as including living twice, uh, in uh, first in Libya and then in uh, Egypt. She converted to Islam and went on to get two masters and a PhD in Arabic and Islamic studies, going through tons of interpretations and analyses of the holy book. But while studying, she realized they were all either written by men or notated by men. There weren't even women in the footnotes. Wadud says this was especially surprising because she found great sensitivity to women's experience in the holy book itself. She gives an example. In the Quran, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, is ready to give birth, she goes into labor, the Quran talks about this experience in a way no other text has ever talked about. It is completely focused on her. It's completely as a comfort to her. And it does not ignore her cry out. But when she looked for that same sensitivity in the books explaining the Quran, she found... There's so much out there, but there's nothing that comes from women. So Wadu decided to respond to the text herself. She published her 1999 PhD dissertation as a book, a commentary on the Qur'an called Qur'an and Woman. In it, she explores a woman's place in the holy book, from worship and spirituality to concepts of gender equality and marital guidelines. She critically analyzes controversial issues like polygamy, She says, according to the Qur'an, it shouldn't be as common as it is today. 
And she says, contrary to popular belief, the text does allow a woman to become a president or an imam. She says, much of the image of Muslim women being oppressed and voiceless comes from misreading of scripture. And since all the interpretations, you know, until the 20th century were done by men, it means that we are relying solely on men. Men are not the only human beings. Women are human beings, too. You know, the whole idea of a patriarchal society or somebody, this is not during the prophet's time. That's Dr. Lale Bakhtiar, an Iranian-American scholar of Islamic texts and Arabic language. She says Islamic theology didn't always exclude female perspectives, that in the early days of the religion, there was a lot of female scholarship. There's a great tradition of that. There was one scholar, he's found, I believe it's 800 women who were, you know, over a period of centuries, who were scholars on hadith. Hadiths are quotations from the Prophet that people find guidance in. Bakhtiar says Muhammad and his companions valued their wives' opinions and held them in high regard. The Prophet was unbelievable, and most of his companions were really good to women, and they loved the women that they were married to, Ali and Fatima, or, you know, Abu Bakr and his wife. I mean, the the mother of Aisha. These were really wonderful people, loving, caring towards their women. She says after the Prophet died in the year 632, there was a century of flourishing Islamic thought. But in later centuries, the Islamic empire spread around the world, which meant caliphates whose main concern was to stay in power. Bakhtiar says with this power came more control over what Islam was and who makes the rules. So she says Muslims slowly started losing an original cornerstone of Islamic discourse, the concept of furqan. In the West, it's called critical thinking, but we call it furqan, or discernment. So we reason for ourselves why we're going to be doing this before we do it, and then decide, well, no, I don't have to follow what that person is saying if I disagree with it. The result of this erosion in critical thinking, she says, is that today... It's become a very puritanical, literal understanding, and a complete disregard and denial that we ever had an Islamic intellectual tradition. So in her dozens of translations of classical Islamic works, Bakhtiar says she's made sure to do that critical thinking while being careful to translate accurately. It took her seven years to complete her translation of the Qur'an, called the Sublime Qur'an. She says a lot of the available translations were clunky in the English or had too many confusing footnotes. She wanted to make the holy book accessible to the average modern American. It's to, in a sense, realize the Quran within yourself, to read it in the language that you understand. What is it saying to you? How does it relate to you? And some of her translations, particularly those that addressed women's lives, were clear departures from previous versions. For example, in chapter 4 in the Quran, there's a verse that says, Critics of Islam commonly point to this verse when talking about Muslim women's rights. 
It starts with which so far had been translated to say men are in charge of women or men are the protectors or maintainers of women. Bakhtiar's translation said men are the supporters of women, noting that the Arabic verb used for in charge or to maintain within the context of this verse actually meant support, particularly financial support. While the sublime Qur'an received high praise from some Muslims, especially younger English-speaking Americans, not everyone welcomed it. Some criticized the translation. Others said she was changing the words of God. And her critics included women. Dr. Lale Bakhtiar, an Iranian-American, has had to defend her work against critics who've questioned her interpretation. On this Al Jazeera TV show from 2007, a scholar from Qatar challenges Bakhtiar on her translation of a highly debated Quranic verse that's been translated to say, men are allowed to strike or beat their disobedient wives. As much as I would like to believe that indeed it doesn't mean strike or beat, I have to be honest. Uh, we have to have respect for the, the, the text because there are other uh, um, issues involved. The, the syntactic, yani the, the sentence structure maybe merits that it really means strike or beat. Yeah. Okay, yes, Lali, what do you want to say to that? My point is that our beloved prophet, peace and the mercy of God be upon him, he was unlettered. And when the Quran was revealed to him, I don't think he thought, well, is this a transitive verb or an intransitive verb? Is it going to be a direct object or an indirect object? This is the verse they were debating. For centuries, it's been interpreted by most scholars to say that a rebellious wife could be hit by her husband as punishment. The verb used in the original Arabic is daraba, which is commonly translated today as to strike or beat. Other translations have said, beat them lightly or scourge them. None of these seemed accurate or even Islamic to Dr. Bakhtiar. And I spent six months researching this one verse because I couldn't believe that the God that I love and the prophet that I love would have allowed anyone to beat women. There's no way. So her translation abandoned the whole premise of corporal punishment. She translated the verb daraba to mean to go away from, meaning if a couple is in conflict, the Qur'an says for them to separate for a time. And she based her interpretation on three things. Firstly, she says the spirit of Islam is nonviolent, and the Prophet himself never laid a hand on any of his wives. Secondly, she says the verb daraba has 12 different meanings in Arabic, one of which is to leave, to go away, but that men have been choosing the convenient one to fit their patriarchal systems. And thirdly, she used Furqan, Islamic critical thinking method. I went back through all of the Quran, and I came to verse 2, 231. And there it says that husbands who want to divorce their wives must do it honorably, and they cannot harm them. What? They cannot harm them. Therefore, I said to myself, a Muslim woman who's going to be divorced cannot be harmed. But a Muslim woman who wants to remain married does so under the threat of being beaten. 
wait a minute, who are we doing this to? This is the woman I love. This is the woman, the mother of my children. This is the woman I care for. I married. Why would I be allowed to hit her when I can't if I want to divorce her? Dr. Bakhtiar says the nonviolent spirit of Islam is sometimes lost with male-only interpretations like beat or even beat lightly. But I have found just as many women as men who say that this can't be beat. And I found just as many women as men who say, no, women need to be beaten. But she acknowledges that change takes time when you've been conditioned a certain way. And we know that domestic violence is something that carries from generation to generation if nobody steps in, if no woman has the courage or the ability to be able to stand up to it and move on, and her children see that she did not stand for it, so therefore they're not going to either. But we have that's a lot of education that we have to bring about to, to have that happen. Bakhtiar was heavily criticized by scholars across the Islamic world, including high-ranking female scholars. Other American Muslim women leaders have also faced criticism, like Dr. Amina Wadud, author of Quran and Woman. When she led a mixed-gender prayer service back in 2005, protesters called her blasphemous. It was the first time on record that men and women prayed in a mixed setting led by a woman imam. Still, a movement is growing, and Wadud says she's proud of her role in it. As a woman, and having done the work that I had done, it was an important contribution to what we now call Islamic feminism, which I didn't even call myself a feminist in the 90s. She says although she struggled with the term feminist at first because of its secular origins, it's growing on her. To her, Islamic feminism means a feminism that grounds its arguments for equality and women's rights in the teachings of Islam. Today, Wadud works with women in the U.S. and in Muslim countries who she says in many cases have just grown disenchanted with the version of Islam they're surrounded by. She formed two organizations, Sisters in Islam and Musawa, the Arabic for equality. What we're doing is we're taking Islam, the Constitution, international invention, and women's lived realities, and we're making a dynamic intersectional conversation. She says for her, that conversation boils down to one Islamic principle nobody can argue with, justice. Because if, if everybody is from 14 centuries plus of Islam saying that Islam is about justice, then you have to go to the women and say, are you experiencing justice? And you also have to measure the justice in their lives. Uh, maternal mortality rates, levels of education, access to resources, access to education. And she says, despite the obstacles, she feels incredibly blessed. I came to this journey with no idea of the impact, and now I can't deny the impact, and sometimes it can be overwhelming because I'm still just a little farm girl from Maryland who's really interested in God. She says she stays grounded by going back to the first verse revealed in the Qur'an, the command to read. Our legacy in Islam is we just keep learning, we just keep studying, we just keep thinking about, talking about, writing about debating over, uh, constructing and reconstructing ideas about the sacred. That is the legacy. Islam is no longer fixed. 
it is no longer the purview only of men with beards. It belongs to everyone. And so it becomes a very dynamic process, which in my mind never ends. For Cross Currents, I'm Hana Baba. That's all for this week's show. Our producer this week is Kevin McCarthy. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler, for her vision, MC Yogi for our theme music, and additional sounds by Audio Binger and Blue Dot Sessions. Special shout out to our friends at The Spiritual Edge, a reporting project of KALW Public Radio. To learn more about their work, you can visit interfaithradio.org, where you'll find links to their program and catalog of shows. To learn more about us, visit the website, sign up for the newsletter, and let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to hear from you. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or really the podcaster of your choice. Just search Interfaith Voices. And while you're there, help us out. Leave a rating and a review. It helps others find us. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well. I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected. I'll see you next week. <music>